Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving podcast. Okay, this week in London on Friday night, we have a Hot Flash 20 show, the London leg of the Hot Flash 20 tour. Last weekend, we were in Munich at Blitz Club and Barcelona at Nizza, and those shows were awesome. Really, really enjoyed them. I've been enjoying the shows generally, but in London, we're doing venue MOT, which I haven't played before, but I'm really excited to be down there. It's a small, sweaty little venue, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm playing back-to-back with Distance. I think I'm going to do a solo set as well. Jay Carter is playing back-to-back with Sam Binger. Roska is also playing, as well as Isaac Rubin. So it's going to be super, super fun. So if you're in London on Friday night, then join us down there, please. It's going to be super, super fun, as I said. Can't wait for it. So check the link in the show notes for tickets. And yeah, we'll see you there for a rave. Okay, this week on the show, we have none other than Tiana T. This has been long in the making, this episode. but We finally got it done. Tiana is a bit of a Serbian hero. She's from Belgrade, originally and as we hear in the conversation she's kind of between there and berlin these days but yeah a bit of an underground hero of the serbian scene serbia is a country with a slightly difficult history and a quite difficult present as well and we get into some really interesting areas actually on this week's conversation politics and music and the difficulties of representing a place with a slightly difficult political landscape so it's the kind of conversation i really love having on this show so I think you're going to enjoy it if you're a fan of the show. And if you don't like music and politics, then I guess, I don't know. I don't know what I could do for you. 
we we do like that kind of stuff on the show. So before we get started, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. There's two separate tiers there, the more expensive of which gets you on the Hot Flush promo list. So there's exclusive music and all the music that we release on the label, which goes up there free of charge as part of your subscription fee. It is pretty cheap. And then the regular tier gets you bonus podcasts and various other things too. So it's generally speaking a good thing to do if you're enjoying the show. And we'll be very grateful if you found it in the kindness of your hearts to support us in that way. If you don't want to, if you can't afford it, that's also cool. Leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to that playlist. Contains much of the music we talk about on the show. And join us in the Discord. There is a private area of our Discord server for patrons, but if you're not a patron, you can also get into the regular one. So hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord gets you the invite to join the server. And if you want to ask me anything about the show, if you've got any feedback, you've got any questions, anything at all, then that's the place to do it. So without further delay, here is Tiana T. Tiana T, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Um, I'm all right. A bit confused in Berlin. The weather is schizophrenic. Like in the last 15 minutes, it rained two times and it was like dark and sunny like three times. So do you live sort of between Belgrade and Berlin? Is that is that your arrangement? That is correct. Um, yeah, I spent half of my time in Berlin and half of my time in Belgrade in between touring and travels of course sure yeah okay so how long have you been spending time in berlin for like obviously you're from belgrade originally but um how long have you been spending considerable amounts of time in berlin um yeah i'm from belgrade and i grew up in belgrade and uh berlin i mean i have to say i started this thing already back in like 2006 um, when I had my first project here in Berlin and I did it in 2006, 7, 8, um, then I would just like visit Berlin regularly, but not have a, a like a stronger connection here or spending, um, more months in a year here. And then, um, basically when I started traveling more internationally, or, well, not more, but very intensely. Uh, I had to be here more often. It was easier. My agency's here. And then from 2018, I got myself a place here and I registered myself uh, as a resident of Berlin. So it's been like four years, I would say, like four and, four, four and a half that I'm doing this like really like proper half-half thing. Sure. Okay. I didn't actually have this written down as a first question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because it just occurred to me as you were uh, talking there. So since 2006, as you said, that was the kind of first time you spent a lot of time here. Like what are the changes that you've observed in the city? What have those been? Well, it's definitely not the same city. Um, Fortunately or unfortunately, um, I guess for different groups of people this city now offers more opportunities because back then it was really poor it was broke it was around the time when the mayor of berlin had that legendary um uh, interview in which he said berlin is poor but sexy <laughs> right yeah i remember that <laughs> um, um now it's different obviously it's 
more gentrified, which is the case with many other cities in the world. I think it's uh, it's a global phenomena. Um, what I've noticed in our scene, let's say, or industry, um, and is that somehow, like back then, there was a sense of community, like all sorts of people would, you know, all sorts of scene were connected to each other. And um, I had the feeling that, you know, it was smaller. So you would go to Panorama Bar on Sunday and you would literally see everyone. <laughs> now it's like, now it's not really the case. People are more busy. There are so many different places around the city where you can go out. Um, everyone has their own thing going on. So there's also a change in the mentality within the scene. Uh, everything has become way more professional, way more profitable. It's more, I think even in Berlin, it's really more like, you know, business now. Um, so that would be my main, um, yeah, this is, this is something that I, that I'm, yeah, noticing the most within what we do. Um, the other changes are obviously something that happened to every city in the world. The rents are higher, coffee is more expensive, even donor, which was always like a food for people who had nothing <laughs> going on, um, is now like five or six euros, I think. Um, so yeah, it's just like more expensive. And once it becomes more expensive, it attracts different kind of people to move in here. But it's still, I think, very unique place in the world, especially for what we do. Um, and I don't know many countries or cities that um, that give so much uh, systemic support to artists, artists of any kind, um, and who actually somehow acknowledge, let's say, DJing uh, and parties as part of the culture and in many places in the world, like DJ is not even considered a profession or like a normal job. People would look at you and ask you, okay, and what's what's your real job? And like he, here, if you say like you're a DJ, it's as if you said, um, I'm an architect, you know, <laughs> it's just another job. <laughs> it's, it's considered to be profession, which is actually really good. People can focus on um yeah building building their careers and building their lives around it okay um so my i do have a first question that i had uh prepared which was relating to your work as a journalist because i mean you have been a music journalist and music journalism is something that we've talked about on the show quite a lot so do you agree that the quality of music journalism has declined in the past say 15 years or so, 10, 15 years? Um, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, mainly because, um, I mean, for me, um, I see it as a, as a class problem um, because, um, well, I come from Serbia. It's already like quite an unprivileged position. Um, and even there, I also come from the unprivileged background. Um, and... Um, I remember reading this article in 2005 already where 
one journalist uh, was saying how basically um, media and especially like music media outlets are paying journalists so poorly that basically the only people who can afford to do that job are people who are um, who have a good financial background from their family, let's say, which also gives um, a slightly, yeah, it's just like a different perspective to everything. And um, I think, uh, I think that's the problem that this like, really diverse perspective uh, is missing. And you have a lot of young people who um, don't need to do it, like they don't need to do it to support themselves, but they do it just for the image or for the lifestyle that it comes with or to be like part of, uh, you know, the cool the cool kids crew, <laughs> you know, like to work in a cool like media outlet and, and write about music and travel to festivals and attend concerts for free. Um, which um, not necessarily always, but often disturbs some sort of like objective perspective. And um, I, I see that as a, as a big problem or one of the problems that led to uh, the decline in uh, music journalism. But um, I mean, journalism in general and what we consider like... Uh, media or what was traditional media um, is in crisis. Not, not only, I wouldn't say it, it only happens in music journalism. I think it's in huge crisis in all aspects, like political or social journalism. Like a lot of the views are really biased. Um, the whole uh, public discourse is getting like really polarized, especially in the last years. Um, and I mean, we also know how media is corrupt in subtle or less subtle ways. So it's, it's, it's a bit of like, um, yeah, that's what, what's happening. Like it's the sign of our times. Um, so I think media journalism is just like affected by it. And the, the problem is also that now with, um, social networks and and uh, different ways that people communicate and that people want to absorb information um some forms of this music journalism seems to be obsolete and i think um media outlets some somehow didn't find find a way to address uh, their new audience in a way that would be yeah, interesting, and that would be like uh, interesting for younger readers or younger audiences, but at the same time relevant and serious and um, in depth. It's really hard. It's also like the generation kind of gener the changes of generation because like younger people have like. I guess their attention span is different so like if you want to if you want to have like serious coverage um, and write something that is like uh, heavily analyzed and like an in-depth article for example no one's going to read it if no one reads it like you don't have enough uh, 
funds to support yourself because no one wants to, you know, advertise on your page or whatever. It's just this like loop of um, of the times that we live in. If you if you know what I if you if you know what I mean, but yeah, I I I, I agree. I agree that it was that it's. Um, Sometimes I read these articles, I read like reviews of the events that I attended or reviews of the music that I listened to. Um, and I'm like, yeah, this is like, <laughs> so like I'm missing objectiveness, you know, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's, it's, uh, somehow, yeah, it's, it's diff different. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's <laughs> lots to unpack there to what you just said, right? There's, there's a few different things. I mean, just going back to your first point about the, like, the economic class of people who do this kind of journalism now. And I think this is kind of, that kind of links to you know, the, the, the broader point you were making about media. But I think this is particularly true in music because it's, as you said, like this is something that, which is perceived to be quite, quite cool. And it's something that, you know, people want to get in to do, but obviously like you know, the money in it is not what it once was if there was ever, ever any money in it. Right. So do you think that, you know, the, the backgrounds of people who are writing about music, um, do you think that's contributed to the kind of lack of seriousness with which economic inequality is taken versus other sorts of inequality. Like there's a lot of talk in, in music writing about diversity and about privilege. But until very recently, there's been very little discussion of class, economic class, and how that disadvantages people. So do you think that... Um, the issue about the backgrounds of the writers do you think that's played into that well it plays into everything in life um, you know <laughs> so it must play into it you know it's just um, it's really it's uh, it's just a different perspective I'm I mean I I've experienced it uh, in my life and I it's actually in like in all honesty for me uh, very challenging to navigate this kind of this scene that I belong to or this industry because um, I've never mm, been able to learn about it uh, in my own country um, and also I I always feel like um, I'm just like because of my background really different from people that I encounter every day almost on a, like a daily basis i just see that the problems they are focused on are problems that have nothing to do with me <laughs> you know it's just like well, all, all sorts of different sets of problems so i'm pretty sure it plays into every perspective like a perspective to life a perspective to music perspective to events uh perspective to experiences it's just a it's just a filter that um we have different filters through which we perceive things. Um, like it's not, like it's not same. If uh, yeah, we've talked as you as you mentioned, it cannot be the same for like uh, a queer person of color coming from a suburb somewhere and uh, someone who is like uh, a white privileged uh, person living in a 16th century family house in Belgium. It's just not the same perspective. I'm sorry, <laughs> you know. So, so it, and then I, I, I would say, I would say that um, for both sides, it takes a lot of effort to broaden this perspective and to really understand, to really 
um, develop uh, sensitivity and empathy um, th for um, to, to, be, to just broaden this perspective. Yeah, it takes effort on both sides. Even like people who skip class, who manage to um, somehow escape the class that they were born into, um, it's also, it takes a lot of adaptation and a lot of work um, to accept this new reality and the, uh, the vice versa. Like for people who do come from, um, by luck and birth, privileged backgrounds, um, yeah, it takes a lot of work for them to broaden their perspective. Yeah, absolutely does. And, you know, as you were saying there, there are the kind of levels and varieties of, of privilege that people experience, right? And so, like, you know, it's possible yeah. to be of um, wealth. I guess, I mean, this is best summed up in intersectionality, right? And when that's properly applied, you know, it's um, a way of a sort of assessing the relative levels of privilege that people experience. So you can be a rich person of colour, right? And you can be a poor white person, right? And and those two things are, you know, exactly. have different nuances to them, right? And I think like the, the tendency that certainly I've observed is there is a kind of like white middle class Western European bias. And I've, that, I've just described myself there, by the way. Like, <laughs> so there is, there is that sort of, I think... Um, bias to coverage generally and just kind of the attitudes which are kind of taken up but then the kind of flip side of that is the kind of um i guess i i describe it as the kind of guilty side of that um identity right and you know then there is some kind of overcompensation towards certain types of privilege so like you know we've um uh talking about i guess i mean the the most obvious one I think in in dance music has been like gender disparities, but also um, disparities with people of color on you know labels and lineups and all the rest of it. But I mean, the whole thing seems to be flavored by this kind of middle class white Western European slash North American um, undercurrent. I mean, is that something that you? Well, I mean, when you said the the, the people that you find yourself interacting with on a day-to-day -day basis is that the kind of thing you were getting at mm, not not necessarily i mean yes uh, it's it's just this um, um yeah it's just this like exactly like this like uh, white uh, western european slash north american slash australian um white uh, mid-class i mean this is um <laughs> i've been telling i mean i have a lot of friends in Detroit, for example, and they're all uh, people of color. Um, and I have to say, like, I, I have better understanding uh, with these guys. And we share a lot in a lot more in common that I would share with a white person from a Western European country. I mean, okay, I'm white. Obviously, I don't have, uh, I have never experienced uh, experienced uh, racial um, uh, disadvantages um, or discrimination. But at the same time, um, like 
where my background, my geographical background or um, socio-political background is something that puts me in a completely different category. And I have certain systemic uh, disadvantages or like systemic um, uh, uh, um, problems which I'm facing and they are much closer to... um, um what people of color are facing sometimes you know once i show my once i show my passport for example um at any border especially borders to western europe i'm not treated the same way as someone who would show a european passport it's just the questions i'm being asked the way i'm being treated the tone of the voice changes immediately <laughs> so so yeah this is um and also like the way I grew up the problems I had to overcome for me growing up in Belgrade and um deciding to be a DJ um at the time when there was maybe like one or two female DJs in that city was wow it was <laughs> I mean the problem the problems I had um, I just never um, experienced any kind of support. Um, I was asking my friends who were, or at least they were my DJ friends uh, until that moment when I decided to become a DJ. Um, I would ask them to show me how to use equipment or to uh, show me some tricks, how to like mix or to just explain how to mix. And uh, they just didn't want to. Like, and they were, I mean, so much harassment, so much online harassment, so much hatred. Uh, so it, and it went on and on for 10 years. I actually had some recognition in my country only after a few years of touring internationally and having 100 gigs per year all over the world and playing all the major festivals, clubs, and blah, blah, blah. And it was then that some people finally were like, okay, we can show a certain amount of respect. <laughs> you know, but but this is and and then and then and then I'm looking at like people who are you know DJs and they were born and raised in Western European countries and they have like always you know you just let's say like in London or Berlin, even Paris, like you have five different shops where you can buy equipment, you have record shops, you have this crew, that crew, this label, that label, a bunch of people who are into it. People are more supportive in general. Um, and um, I just feel like, wow, the, like what I had to go through has nothing to do with <laughs> the problems that these other people are facing. Also, <clears throat> let's say in a country like mine, um, the whole perspective to music and to events is really pure passion because there is no business there, there is no industry there, no one can make a living or uh, uh, can make a career out of, let's say, being a DJ. So people who are into it and people who do it, they really do it only because they love it. And um, for me, this whole like industry perspective and the, like the business games and moves and career steps, uh, correct ones or incorrect ones, that's all like one big mystery. Like, I mean, now I've learned, but it was just overwhelming when I stepped into this world. I was like, oh, wow, it took me years to even accept that it's possible to be successful. 
Like it's actually possible to, to be successful. <laughs> so, so I'm giving you examples on how, like, uh, so, sorry to interrupt once again. I'm just giving you examples on how my perspective to, let's say, events and DJing is different than, let's say, yours. You're, you're born in UK. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a country of, you know, music, electronic music, events, festivals, careers, big DJs, media that supports this kind of music. It cannot be the same, you know? Absolutely. Okay, so I had like 50 questions, like as you, as you were say, saying all that. Um, I'm going to return to something that you, were, you said in the middle there about getting recognition in your own country. Because this is something we talked about with Eric Clute regarding the recognition or not that the first and second wave Detroit producers and DJs did or didn't receive or more didn't receive until much later. And the concept of acceptance in your own town or your own you know community i guess and then another question which popped into my head as you were saying that was you know getting support from within your own i guess network and your own kind of social group and your own community and your own you know scene i guess so <laughs> can you sort of expand a little bit more on those two things like how do you see the scene and i want to ask you about like the a more general development question about the scene in in serbia but you know in your own experience of becoming successful how did that kind of interact with your local community um well yeah i mean this is also something i talked about with my friends from detroit and also chicago uh one of my friends here in berlin is alinka she comes from chicago and um we're also the same generation so we were sharing our experiences um about this whole issue you know like when i became a dj it was absolutely in, like it was unacceptable that you cannot mix like everything had to be like flawless and my my kind of like de development went the other way around people first started booking me to be a dj before i even became a dj so i was learning how to do it in front of like full clubs and parties <laughs> i was l learning how to be a dj and learning how to mix and how to use the equipment in front of an audience <laughs> But but I was like brave enough to do it, um, um, and this is also something I saw like in these early days in Berlin. Like a lot of like I've seen a lot of DJs who are now big DJs, big names um, in their beginnings. But this, people were more supportive. They would tell you like, oh, you know, maybe you can't hear well. This is how you adjust the monitors, or this is how you do this or that, and you know they would kind of like help you whereas in belgrade it would be like oh she's a shit dj she only gets books because she's a woman and then all the all the gossips that i'm sleeping with promoters and i mean it went on even when i started touring everywhere it's like the <laughs> this whole thing like yeah yeah she's sleeping around and then another friend a female dj told me do they really think that we have time to sleep with 100 different promoters per year <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah uh, I mean I had some people who supported me 
and in the beginning and these were um i would say the originators or like older generation of people of dj's and promoters in belgrade and i'm very thankful that they supported me um but then my own generation and my own kind of crew uh mm, i didn't feel such a big support and it was very confusing uh because i was doing music tv shows and radio shows and it was also like considered as some sort of vanity you know like what does she want now isn't it enough that she's on tv now she wants to be a dj as well you know i had a feeling they they treated me a lot as if i'm taking their place you know or taking their part of the cake and this is their god-given right to be in this position um no one else and then, i mean i've seen it with other girls as well like uh in the last years i i've noticed some girls in belgrade who are one is a painter the other one is a fashion designer and they were always at parties they are really they really know music they were supporting amazing local dj's um and then the moment they decided to make their own parties and dj themselves those same dj's that were that they supported turned their back on them and started like talking shit behind their back So it's like as a woman you're fine as long as you're a dancer or as long as you stay behind the DJ but once you decide you know to be in this position the support is gone and the gossip starts and all the nastiness obviously is changing like it's not the same as it was not even like 6 years ago um but yeah this is I think one of the reasons why I kind of pushed it and decided uh to do something and to like break out internationally is just um you know to show them <laughs> like to it was it was like okay i'm going to prove myself i'm going to prove them wrong i'm going to do something that no one ever did <laughs> so so it was also i mean i'm i'm that kind of character so it was for me also a kind of a fuel um to move on and move on um but yeah in general i think one of the reasons the scene is not developing there uh is that people are more gossipy than they are supportive um even between men uh so it's not only a problem with girls and the other problem is that it's such a poor environment that you know it's not profitable at all and there is no support whatsoever you cannot apply for a fund for your project and then whatever like the ministry of culture will give you some money or some private fund will uh have funds for projects there's nothing you can ap- apply for so there's like no support unless you are really wealthy and uh f- somehow you're interested in um, in music or electronic dance music and then you can uh like you know invest your own money but in serbia people who are in that position are not interested in this kind of music or this kind of scene um so that's the reason why it's not developing and i think that also obviously uh creates a lot of resentment a lot of uh, anger um also you know like now that we see everything on instagram everything on internet um people in countries or environments like mine are even more aware of this unfairness and this like 
disadvantage that comes with basically luck by birth, you know. <laughs> and um, and I think I get. I mean, I'm not blaming anyone. I understand why people can feel frustrated and then um, be mean to others. So I get it. And and I think um, I think it's the same. It's the same story in Chicago or Detroit, as you mentioned. Um, and for me, actually, I was like, I was really hunting for an international agent for a few years. And I tried uh, different agents and agencies here in Berlin. Um, and joining Dystopian Agency really helped. Like, that was the moment when I started touring because they, um, they were a really good agency with great contacts and amazing DJs. Um, and... For them, my story, uh, being from Serbia, being like a woman from Serbia was interesting and inspiring. Um, and yeah, they were able to, you know, push me a little bit, but I was so ready because I was DJ for already 10 years and I was super experienced because I DJed. I mean, in Serbia, I built my uh, reputation as an all night long DJ. So for years, I was only almost exclusively playing at least eight to nine hours <laughs> on weekends. So I was already quite an experienced DJ when I joined Dystopian. So it was, um, it happened like really fast. The moment they took me on, I started touring. I started like every festival, every uh, club they offered me to, they said yes. And uh, they, after I played, they all started inviting me back. So I was like super ready. So it was actually, and this is the first time I also, that's when I started feeling really confused because I just couldn't believe that people treat you with respect. <laughs> like you, you travel around and you're like surrounded with like a bunch of guys. You come to a club and people treat you with respect. So, yeah, that was like another another chapter, like getting used to have, to actually having support. Okay, so lots of talk about the Belgrade scene there. And obviously, like Serbia, like in the course of like both of our lifetimes, Sorry, I actually, I'm, uh, mm -hmm. sorry, I actually need to uh, interrupt you, and yes. I want to say something um, positive. Actually, the scene in Belgrade is extremely inspiring uh, because of this tension. Because, like, there, you know, everyone is kind of like in this hustle mode. It's not comfortable, um, and I think this is also sometimes a good drive, like a good. Mm, motivation and I have to say still some of my favorite artists and some of my favorite DJs ever are people who are like local DJs in Belgrade um, and the reason for that is that they exactly uh, what makes them frustrated and that is that they cannot have or they 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 don't have equal opportunities as people in let's say western europe like it's almost as i said it's almost impossible to make it a career so people really do it out of honest interest and love for music and this is another um another thing that i think plays a role in the perspective to events and music and uh, and this is why they're so good because they are not calculating there's like no calculation to be made <laughs> so it's really inspiring and there's a bunch of djs there and a bunch of places belgrade is actually famous for its nightlife for a long long time that city and that country had nothing else to offer except for good fun 
like for great times uh, in, in clubs in Belgrade. Uh, and, you know, the vibe was also, so we're living in a constant stage of crisis. So for people, it's extremely important to go out because this is where they feel relaxed. This is where they can let go. This is where they are, you know, surrounded with other bodies and, you know, feel this like human connection. Uh, so this escape is actually necessary. And since everything is so unstable and, uh, you know, in countries like that, the apocalypse is always around the corner. Every party is like the last one. <laughs> you know? So, uh, so I have to say that um, it's not really like when you're there and when you're experiencing uh, parties um, and DJs and festivals in Belgrade, it's actually very, very special. And the energy is amazing. It's just that, um, you know, building a career or being in the scene and developing yourself as an artist or making any kind of a plan for yourself uh, within that scene is really, really hard, close to impossible. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can totally see that. And actually, you know, when, as you were making that point about how you know, the, the idea about any party being the last one really reminded me of playing in Seoul, actually in South Korea, and just being in an environment where you know, like there's just hundreds of like weapons pointed at a, a place just gives people, a, yeah, it's just a slightly different outlook on life generally. And then that translates through into parties, which I guess is kind of the kind of thing you're getting at there. But yeah, but I mean, my question was going to be um, a little bit more sort of general about the development of the scene in Belgrade because I mean obviously like two wars in the 90s and just just unbelievable like turmoil in the region generally I mean growing up in that I mean you've touched you know you've kind of hinted at like what growing up through that kind of a period was was like but I mean as you were kind of you know beginning to go out and begin to go to parties yourself before like long before you started DJing like what was the scene like in Belgrade during that kind of a period like what were the parties like there the parties were amazing they were the best ever and um i thought actually i'm maybe romanticizing this because i was very young i, I started going out with my uncle uh who <laughs> was bringing me to the parties with him and my parents would allow me to go uh so i was 13 when i started going to parties and the, the parties were phenomenal. And um, I somehow later on, I convinced myself that I romanticized it. Uh, but now when I'm a bit more mature and a lot more experienced, I realized that it wasn't romanticizing. Because I went to a few places where I experienced similar energy. And um, I did connect that with the political uh, situation or political circumstances or historical moment. Um, and these experiences in these countries a lot later reminded me of Belgrade. And I was like, ah, yes, this is how it was. Like, this is exactly how it was. And it was a confirmation for me that it really was fantastic. It wasn't romanticizing. And the places where I had this... Uh, uh, extremely similar feeling or experience uh, was uh, Georgia. It was Tbilisi in Bassiani in their first year, in the beginning of uh, of their year, and it was of their uh, club. And it was, 
exactly, exactly the same vibe that I remember from the 90s and early 2000s um, in Belgrade. And the other place where I had that feeling was Kiev. Obviously, uh, in the year in the years leading to the war, um, or prior to the war, so I realized that this whole like political context plays a big role on how the parties will look like. And uh, yeah, in the nineties, I mean, um, it was wild. The country was involved in multiple wars, as you said. Uh, we had war on our territory by the end of the 90s, but throughout the whole 90s, Serbia was in war. Um, and refugees are constantly arriving and young people were like constantly leaving uh, the country, like whoever could leave the country left. And uh, young men were being mobilized, uh, often, you know, during the night, just taken out of bed and sent to war. Um, so there were some, these were some intense times. I mean, I found out recently from an older friend of mine who was, uh, in the nineties, she was in her twenties and she told me like, well, we had a lot of our friends, guys who would actually go out at night and party all night to escape the military. Cause they were like, yeah, they were, they were hunting them during the night. So they would basically spend all the nights partying and then sleeping over at, you know, random friends or girlfriends, just hiding from their own homes because uh, they knew that if they go home, the, the military will catch them and, like, send them to, to war. So, <laughs> mm, yeah, that's speaking about different perspectives to party <laughs> and to, like, like music journalism. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I mean, for us, uh, speak even like talking about music journalism is already like a luxurious uh, position. <laughs> you know, like for me to like comment on uh, Western musical journalism, I feel like I'm in a very lux like very luxurious position. I have luxurious problems, um, and uh, yeah, so the, that that's how it was in the '90s. And so, hey, let me can I can I interrupt you there? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, I want to dig a little deeper into like what the scene was like on a sort of, I guess, a kind of infrastructure kind of basis, right? Because like y you said just there, like, you know, music journalism is sort of seen through that kind of like lens of like mix mag and whatever, you know, but obviously 
like each individual scene like has its own you know I, I guess like i said what infrastructure is what i used behind it and like, so how are you finding out about parties and what were the kind of I, I guess the back end sort of stuff that kind of linked the various different bits of the scene together and i'm guessing most of the djs that were playing were local but i mean and then you probably had the odd sort of international come through too but can, just tell me a little bit more about how the whole scene kind of like came together like different parts of it yeah i was yeah i was about to uh start with that part so basically it's important to understand this uh like historical or political context yugoslavia the country that existed until 1990 was um not part of the eastern bloc so it was a eastern european country communist socialist country but uh it was not part of the eastern bloc it was the only eastern european country that was not under the influence of USSR. That country actually uh, had good connections with the West and with the East and with the rest of the world, let's say what we these days call global South. So people in Yugoslavia lived a very free life. Like we had uh, Levi's jeans, Coca-Cola, all of those things that people in Eastern Europe were longing for. So we had it. Uh, and we uh, had like American movies uh, shown on TV, Italian TV programs, German programs, French uh, independent movies or whatever. So culturally, Yugoslavia was a very open country. Belgrade is and still is, uh, was and still is the biggest uh, city in that area. And it was very cosmopolitan. Yugoslavian passport would allow you to travel anywhere around the world with any, without any visa issues. So with Yugoslavian passport, you could travel to US, to Western Europe. You could also go to USSR. You could go to Brazil, to China, to Japan, to Africa, everywhere without any restrictions. So people lived a very cosmopolitan life in Belgrade in the 80s, let's say. And 80s were um, really amazing years, especially for music uh, and for alternative music in, in Belgrade. Uh, fast forward to 1990, all of this stops and the war starts and the country is all of a sudden blocked under international sanctions, isolated, uh, no one can go out, no one can get in, there is no import. Um, it's very hard to get any kind of information. And um, people in Serbia, especially, I mean, generally people in Balkans were referred to as, you know, crazy savages who just started this civil war. You know, we were almost treated as like wild tribes. But um, especially, like, especially as, especially in Serbia, so we were like bad guys at that at that time, and we were sanctioned for it. Um, so a lot of uh, people who were, let's say, in their twenties back then, I think, just didn't want to accept this idea. Like, they didn't want to accept that now all of a sudden we are punished and we to, we need to live like different kind of life. So these are the people who were really, tr these were the people who built the scene. They had some experiences in the 80s. Um, and then in the 90s, they just continued. And they just like made every possible effort to keep up with the trends, to follow whatever is happening musically. And it was, yeah, I mean, you would have some relatives who are living somewhere uh, abroad and they would send you magazines. For example, my uncle that I mentioned, he left country when um, 
he left country in 1990, I think, and he lived in Denmark. And every week he was sending me um, a box full of tapes, cassettes, where he would record he was buying and collecting cds and he would record all the new cds to tapes and he would put it on a bus and a bus was driving from copenhagen to belgrade and i would get like every week or every two weeks i would get a box full of cassettes and this is how i knew about the new albums and new music and i guess uh, some people also individually had connections like this or, for example, DJs obviously could not buy records because there were no record shops in, in Serbia because there was no import. So they would uh, find connections um, in certain airlines that still that were still flying internationally. So they would order records and then the stewardess or the pilot would bring them. <laughs> it was just all sorts of all sorts of ways to to get it. Same with magazines. And there were some, I th there were in, these were all individual efforts. Uh, and I guess some, some people were also importing magazines. I'm not even sure if that was legal, but there were certain shops where you could buy Enemy or Mojo, or you could buy even like Mix Mag or DJ Mag. Um, not many copies, but for, there were periods where you could also get those magazines. But people really, really strived. Uh, and really uh, wanted, actually didn't want to accept this new rea reality. Um, and they they really like tried to pretend um, and live their life as if they are part of the world, as if they were not excluded from the world. And this is also how parties have started happening because this is also the time when, you know, raves were developing everywhere around the world and the DJ culture, you know, started really developing a lot. So I guess, uh, yeah, locally people wanted to just keep up with what's happening. But also I would say that these raves or parties um, played a big role because at that time, at that moment in time, it was really necessary for people to have it. And it was kind of, it was a genuine very like very genuine very natural uh development of the scene because there was a need there was like a psychological need for it um and there were a few djs that were also connected to several radio stations independent radio stations in belgrade um and they would somehow connect with labels um around europe and they would get like promos from from these labels sent to them and then they play this music on the radio and they also hosted their own parties. So this is kind of, yeah, this is the vibe. This is, this is how it happened. And then already by the end of 90s, um, it was really um, well developed. I mean, you had the, 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 the good thing about those times is that there were parties everywhere around Serbia, not just in Belgrade. So every town had like their own party. Trance was really popular. <laughs> so even in like very small towns and, and villages, you would have like trance fans and trance parties. Um, obviously local DJs. And I mean, they didn't have fresh records always. So, you know, if you would follow your favorite DJ, you would have to listen to the same tracks all over and all over again. Um, but it was, I don't know, it was fun. And then this, the government changed in 2000 and the whole system changed and the country became open. 
Um, and that was also an opportunity for sponsors to jump in because they realized that this movement, this party movement is quite developed and it's almost like, main, it was actually almost mainstream in Serbia. Like this electronic music was at that moment kind of like mainstream. So when the country opened, a lot of sponsorships ha happened and then all these parties um, became like really huge because they had um, support from uh, sick tobacco companies or beers um, or whatever. And then it developed in more like commercial direction in the next uh, 10 or 20 years. Okay. So like the question that was popping into my head as you were saying all that was, you know, the history of, of the political history of the 90s in Europe generally is, you know, um, you know, post the Cold War, coming out of the Cold War and the end of history and essentially coming together. But then obviously, you know, what happened in Yugoslavia is the complete polar opposite of that. And the, the wars that were happening were civil wars, basically. So, I mean, you know, Acid House and, you know, the development of dance music culture is all a, kind of what well, the kind of cliches around all that is people coming together. So, you know, living in living in a place where people are fighting each other, like how does that affect like the people's mentality around it? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, that there must have been a, a rejection of those sorts of forces. But can you tell, talk a little bit about how that kind of colored the experience of, of the dancing in uh, the various states in Yugoslavia, obviously your, your experience in Serbia. But yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, well, I have to say that um, mm, now it's actually a very well-known fact that these civil wars were not really civil wars. <laughs> um, obviously, it was the politicians and in some cases also the church uh, who played a big role in um, in starting these wars. Uh, it wasn't the people who said, we don't want to live with each other. It was the politicians who said, we don't want to collaborate with each other and we don't want to be um, the same country anymore. And I have to say that in uh, the majority of these countries that formed Yugoslavia, people were against the war. And especially, I mean, I cannot speak for other countries because I haven't been able to visit and experience what it was uh, and how it was in, let's say, Croatia. Bosnia is like the worst, the saddest story ever. But in Serbia, everyone was protesting against this war. People were not like for it. We had protests against the president and the government that led us into war since 1991 until 2000. People were protesting almost every day. For several years, these protests were so massive that you had hundreds of thousands of people on the street every, every day. Unfortunately, this did not stop the war because from my experience and what I know, people have no say in wars. Like, it's not, the, the wars are never people's wars. Um, so when someone else decided or like higher, when higher forces decided that this war would stop, it stopped. So uh, what was bringing the people together at parties is exactly this. It's opposing this. People, people were coming together in being against it. They were not... Uh, um, 
you know, they were not coming together in hatred. They were actually coming together in fighting against this hatred. As, at least in Belgrade. This is, I know for sure that people who went to parties are the same people who went to protests against the war. And as I said, some of them were actually escaping going to war by going to parties. So, um, yeah, it, it's more this... Um, I think it's uh, some like in these times we can also call it trauma bonding. <laughs> it's like uh, I guess people people were bonding in this collective trauma much more than anything else. So it uh, it was yes as you said uh, in the 90s uh, Europe was celebrating you know uh, unity and coming together and forming the European Union. And in Yugoslavia, um, the story was complete opposite. And it was very traumatizing. So um, I know for sure that uh, like a lot of people in Serbia um, were just really sorry that it happened. They didn't want it. And even now when you, like I've, I've actually um, started writing an essay about Yugoslavia and the cultural... Uh, heritage of that era um, and I did um, a lot of research and I read some statistics and uh, two, a few years ago um, a huge uh, uh, research, uh, statistical research was finished where they asked um, an enormous number of people all around ex-Yugoslavia if uh, they are happier now than they were happier back then, and if uh, they they believe that the wars were justified or not, and uh, if they would like Yugoslavia to come back together or not. And um, yeah, the statistics are interesting. In Serbia, I think like 60% of the people or more, <clears throat> definitely more than 60% of the people say that uh, they had it better in Yugoslavia, and they would like Yugoslavia to, you know, be together, and the wars were unjustified. In uh, Bosnia, it's 80-something percent of the people, so that's the country where, uh, which had the worst and the bloodiest and the most terrible wars. Um, so basically, the, like, almost everyone in that country believes that wars sh uh, shouldn't have happened at all. Um, so, so it wasn't like this full-on hatred and um, mode um, around. Yeah, it was more like it was more just a shock and trauma for everyone. Yeah, I can can understand that. So, so as I said, I think I think as I said multiple times, I think those parties were uh, necessary because first of all, like. Um, it was a response to a, a complete disintegration of uh, formal uh, and high culture in our country because the whole country collapsed, uh, everything collapsed, every, mm, every element of society and infrastructure collapsed um, and so did the culture and cultural life. So this, like, let's call it rave culture, was some sort of like counterculture. It was a culture that people wanted to build as, uh, as a response to this collapse. They wanted to build their own culture. And th so that's one part. The other part is that, as we all know, and it's been 
written and talked about a lot, like when you're there dancing for hours, it really releases certain hormones that are necessary for survival. And especially if you're going through a trauma, I'm pretty sure that people instinctively felt this is something they need to do to keep their sanity. And I mean, I have to say this, the sanest people I know are those who attended parties back then and who just did not want to, uh, they didn't, they, they didn't want to, um, cooperate uh, with this everyday uh, darkness you know that was coming with like daytime so they lived at they lived at night and then an, another aspect of these parties is as i said people coming together it was really uh, a natural reaction to this forced uh, uh forced uh, uh, um, uh, div dividedness of people in this war so uh, people were trying to find every possible way to actually come together. Okay. So you mentioned earlier that Serbia in particular was kind of painted in the international press as the quote-unquote bad guys throughout this period. And that's kind of sort of bled over into the current situation with Russia. I mean, just uh, last week, like Novak Djokovic's dad and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> That sort of unsavory kind of stuff, right? And and there is this kind of image, I think, that Serbia has probably unfairly, to some extent, anyway. So, what is it like, though, for you personally, trying to represent a country with such a difficult past, but also quite a diff, quite a sort of like a difficult present as well, actually, in the way that the country is perceived internationally? Ah, uh, well, it's not easy. Um, luckily, like my conflicts are more uh, internal than external. Uh, but as I said, it's just that, I don't know, over the years when I'm like, traveling, let's say, and then I come and um, sometimes promoters or other DJs at the dinner, they are not aware where I come from. Um, and then they ask me and I say I'm from Serbia. And I've never experienced a normal reaction like you're from serbia okay and then we go on with the conversation it's always like these you know these sounds oh wow <laughs> <laughs> wow but i think that's partly because it's, a, it's an interesting region right and people are curious i think i have to say enough, people right? i see that people are honestly surprised and and then, you know, I had to ask myself always, uh, uh, why are they so surprised? Of course, they're surprised because they haven't met a single or f almost any other DJ from that country. Um, but I also have the feeling that somehow in... In their minds, I'm not, and I want to say I'm not blaming anyone here. This is just how, you know, th as I said in the beginning, it's just like a different perspective to life um, and a different perspective to the world and whatever is shown to you in the news and media and blah, blah, blah. So, But I guess like a lot of, especially Western Europeans, simply do not expect people from this country to travel a lot or to even be in a position to be a DJ. <laughs> this is reserved for someone else. <laughs> but this, I mean, it's like subconsciously, of course, like not consciously and not in a, you know, in a bad way. I just understand that people's perception is um, formed um, under the influence of whatever uh, is offered to them in terms of information. 
Um, so, yeah, it's not easy. I mean, I have to say I, I have a soft spot for Djokovic because I completely understand what he's going through. Um, and uh, it hasn't been easy for him. Like, he also... You know, it's like his rivals were people who come from Switzerland and Spain, and it's a, a known like it's it's a for centuries tennis was like this like uh, sport reserved for white higher class. Um, yeah, it's an aristocratic pursuit, right? And and I'm Roger Federer just seems like an aristocrat himself. Yeah. Right? So and and I understand why he's this like bad 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 boy, and I understand his own rage and his own. Um, he also has you know internal conflicts, and he also feels like he has to fight against the whole world sometimes, which. Um, is partly true, partly some. It just comes from his own perspective. Um, so I totally understand that, and yeah, it hasn't been easy because I also feel like some things are quite unfair. I mean, look at the history of Germany and the you know the crimes that Germany committed against humanity, um, and somehow this country was like twenty years after the war, thirty years after the war, it was well off again. It was fine. It was functioning. Um, you know, their uh, citizens were able to live normal lives. Um, infrastructure was built back. Their passports were okay. And I have the feeling like in my country, like this um, sort of like natural amnesty that happens after every war never happened. It's like we are to blame forever. <laughs> We're like guilty forever for whatever crimes happened or did not happen. Um, and I have to say, it's like I'm not taking any sides. I don't think that my country or I don't even know what a country means. You know, this entity is a made up thing. Um, you can't, I can't even speak in the name of my country because I'm not sure like in which name am I talk like am i talking on behalf of the citizens of serbia am i talking on behalf of the political elites or you know what i mean i just can't like it's it's very confusing all of this because um what the governments are doing is often not reflecting what people want or what what people would do if they had a say and yeah i now i got confused but it's it's i would say like it's a very for me the hardest thing is to try to explain it to people if they ask me sometimes like you're asking now because all of these issues are so deep and so complex and until recently people in the uh, let's say western world had absolutely no understanding of any kind of complexity and nuances in any conflict or in politics because they were not so involved they were not so informed and I have to say, in the recent years, like the general public has become more interested in politics in the West, I'm, I mean, and more uh, criticizing. And it's it probably happened because a lot of information is leaking on the Internet. Um, so everyone has access to information, to different kind of information. Um, but also because I would say the Western world is in huge crisis now, which was you know, a big eye-opener for a lot of people. And for me now, it's much easier to explain some things because people understand that, um, you know, the politics of a government don't really reflect uh, what 
the citizens of this country uh, feel or experience. And um, actually what happens in Serbia, uh, what is happening in Serbia in the last 30 years, and this is also something that I think is happening in Russia right now, is that the government is working directly against the interest of their own people. So it's it's always um, it's always uh, just an interest of the political elites and their friends, um, it's and their relatives, whatever. Um, I mean, no one like in Serbia, no one had any interest in these wars, and no one has any interest in this like constant state of crisis. N- no one has any interest. Uh, I'm speaking about like ordinary people. Like the quality of life is just getting lower and lower and lower. So uh, for me, that was the biggest challenge. Not um, it wasn't like, of course, uh, you know, when you come from a country like that, you also develop. I'm pretty sure I'm quite paranoid as well. Sometimes uh, I may be exaggerating people's reactions, or sometimes I'm uh, interpreting it in in a negative or like different way, just because I'm aware of where I come from and. Um, what the general perception of my country is, um, but mm, that's that's like one side of the story. The other one is trying to explain the complexity of everything, <laughs> which is even like a much harder, much harder uh, um, task. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's very similar to what's happening now between Ukraine and and Russia, and it's very unfortunate. And for all of us in ex Yugoslavia. This uh, ongoing war is re-traumatizing. I've noticed that uh, all of my friends here in Berlin who come from Croatia, who come from Bosnia, who come from Serbia, um, just don't want to get involved. You know, they're like, please leave us alone. We had enough wars in our life. We cannot get involved in this one too. Um, So it's like highly re-traumatizing because it's very, very similar to what happened in our countries. Like a lot, there's, there's a too many similarities except that now with Russia and Ukraine the interests are much higher <laughs> and much bigger and obviously um, you know Russia is a way more powerful country than any of Yugoslavian p- countries ever was and it plays a different role in like this in like international uh, political game and obviously you know Ukraine has some extremely valuable resources that uh, are of high interest to also the other side of global elites. So it's even like, it's even more complex and it's even, it's going to be even harder to stop this war, I think, but it's very similar. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I mean, just going back to what you were saying there about the engagement of people and I think young people specifically in the West, like Western Europe, North America, I think like there is definitely sort of like, like the interest in, in this sort of stuff goes in waves but I think generally there is a tendency to be like very black and white about it to be very simplistic and I don't think there's much appetite for any sort of nuance really I'm just thinking back to for example um, the opposition against the Iraq war and then that bleeding into you know what happened around the financial crisis and then into you know the Trump presidency and all these kind of like catalogue of you know pretty um pretty difficult events on a number of different levels and you know the the various waves of interest that came up around those events but the tendency amongst the general 
public and you know i think the you know, young people especially like just to kind of see it as as a black and white issue whatever it is this is something either we're against it or we're on one side of this argument basically and the way that the current conflicts talking about you know the, the war in in ukraine and how various different countries and you know identities fall down on which side like i think i think people do see it in that kind of adversarial black and white kind of a way but as you just as you were kind of just touching upon like there is all sorts of issues overlapping issues to this stuff right and it's it's not really that helpful just to say well this is bad and this is good even if you can sort of you know broadly you know just describe you know what russia is doing as as being bad quite quite bad right I mean, there is a lot more to it than that. Um, definitely. I mean, I would agree. But um, as I said, uh, when we also talked about music journalism um, in the beginning of a conversation, I think this is also a generational thing, this polarizing. Um, and it translates to many different uh, issues and topics. Mm, also, um, yeah, the, the, to- the issues surrounding like... Uh, um yeah i don't know like black lives matter movement uh identities uh queer blah blah it's all not nuanced it's all like it's always black and white and this is also what I, and and this comes i'm pretty sure that this is uh that this is a result of this very um raw and and not not complex um communication that comes that happens online so twitter or facebook or instagram are not places where you can have conversations like serious conversations these are not places where you can uh present your arguments uh, in a productive way uh people there um communicate in in a style that is very unproductive and it leads to this it leads to polarization It's like, oh, uh, here's this uh, new thing that we are fighting for. Oh, great, yeah, let's do it. And then someone asks a question, and the moment you ask a question, you're like, oh, you're against us. <laughs> I mean, to, to, to put it simple, but this is all just internet conversation. This is Twitter conversation. Um, in real life, I'm pretty sure it would not happen like that. And I'm, and I'm also, like, I, I can't really say if... Uh, what we read in the news or what we see as uh, conflicts um, or conversations online, I can't really say if this is something that translates in reality. If in real life these people really believe that and uh, if, uh, if this same conversation, if it would be moved in real life, would look like that. Mm, and it's weird confusing times i have to say but um as for like russia and ukraine it's definitely very very complex i mean first of all people in the western world um don't understand what it means not to really not have freedom of speech people do not understand that they do not understand what it means to live um in a dictatorship Uh, they they also don't understand what it means to live in a system where human life is really not valued at all. 
where you actually, like, people in the West are born and raised in countries uh, where they feel comfortable, they feel free, they, they feel um, that their life is valued, they have certain rights, uh, their constitution and their system guarantees those rights, um, and Russia is not one of those countries. And people are treating citizens of Russia as if <laughs> they don't live under the circumstances that they live in. They expect the citizens of Russia to do something they cannot do. I mean, as I said, in uh, Belgrade or in Serbia, we were protesting against the war for 10 years. Hundreds of thousands of people in every city. The war did not stop. So... Um, and we're talking about, so everyone is saying that their president is crazy. Oh, Putin is crazy. Okay. But <laughs> no one understands that there are millions of people who are ruled by this crazy person. You know what I mean? It's like, they, they expect this, like uh, the West expects the citizens of Russia to do something that even themselves would not be ready to. I mean, how many times the, the government in UK go into a war somewhere in the Middle East, and did the citizens of UK try to stop that war? Did they manage to? And we are talking about like a free, free democratic society. And now like, peop like people of this, like people are expecting someone in Russia who can just disappear overnight if they, you know, raise their voice to go out in the streets and fight against Putin and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's just, I mean, it's just not something they can do. Like, it takes a lot. Even if they are able to leave the country, they will still have, like, friends and relatives who stay there, and then they can have a hard time, or they can disappear, end up in jail, they can be tortured, wherever. This is what's happening. This is reality in that country. I mean, I talked to a few people who left Russia in the last one year, and they told me what they experienced after they went out on the protests. They told me what happened after they wrote something publicly on the internet. They, they told me what happened to their family. And it wasn't only their parents. It was also their grandmas, grandpas, uh, aunts, uh, sisters, brothers. You know, like, how many people are ready to sacrifice everything? Not many. It's not easy. <laughs> yeah, I, there's a ridiculous assumption that somehow like you say like this to you can just make a statement without there being this sort of implications for it for your personal life and the, the lives of your family it's it's absurd we've talked about it on the show previously about you know like the the sort of the obligations that are put on you know just just using russia as an example like the obligations that are put on russian artists to make some kind of public statement you know in a way which is just so presumptive you know without this without a second thought yeah i mean i have to say those people who i mean uh, i would like to see those people who are uh, creating this atmosphere are putting pressure on these russian artists i would like to see them risk their families lives for saying something online I mean, they never, like, they, they never ask themselves, would I be able to do this under these circumstances? Um, because people, I mean, uh, I think it's, it's a very critical moment in society, in Western society these days. And a lot of people feel, 
Uh, like, uh, yeah, there's like a, a lot of things are changing constantly. And I think a lot of people are kind of like losing it, but they cannot understand why they're so confused. And they have this like internal anger that they need to uh, direct towards someone. And of course, if someone offers you an enemy, you will, <laughs> you know, like if the enemy is there, uh, it's written everywhere. Okay, here, if you hate anyone, this is the person you can hate now. Um, if you want to hate any, anyone, this is the person that is like a legitimate target. Everyone will be like, oh, great, amazing. I'm going to just direct my anger towards th this person and will not ask further questions why I actually have this anger in me it's also like it's uh, it's very deep and it's uh, and it's very very complex but um what i want to say is that um i'm actually completely um against uh sanctions and isolations and cultural isolations because uh, mm, they always prove to be counterproductive. And even the United Nations have a bunch of reports on countries that had international sanctions and countries that were isolated. And it was always the same storyline in every of these countries. They would just get more right-wing, more xenophobic, more racist, more nationalist. When you exclude people and when you isolate them and when you direct this uh, international hatreds towards them, the only reaction you will get is hatred, like more hatred. So I know for for fact that this happened in Serbia. Nationalism in Serbia is higher than... Um, any time before because now you have like generations and generations and generations of people who are born um, in an environment uh, in which they are aware that the outside world hates them like they you know we are not accepted we are not loved uh, no one wants us okay fuck them I will hate them too and I will hate the foreigners, and I will hate the European Union, and I will hate everyone who's different, I will hate the refugees from Syria, you know what I mean. So it's actually always much better to um, approach it with uh, love and understanding and tolerance, but unfortunately in this international political game, it's not possible. Um, and what I'm trying from my position and my experience is at least to talk to people that are open to hearing my experience and just explain them why this is not a good approach. And I've been telling that to everyone since this uh, war in Ukraine started. I've been talking to a lot of, of my Ukrainian friends as well, is that um, if you accept that there is an enemy and if you accept that you um, need to hate and fight against, this is, uh, and if you spread this hate, um, this is actually the moment when you allowed yourself for the war to win. Then the war win. Then we're all in war. And uh, when you're challenged with a situation like that, I would say it's extremely important to invest all the efforts to let love win and just react, although it's really hard, especially for Ukrainians, it's almost, I mean, you cannot, even, you cannot ask that from them because their country is under attack and, you know, their families are, family members are dying or whatever. But uh, if they can find some traces of love and understanding towards the other side, 
that would be um, a better reaction because this is this shows that you're not allowing this war to win. And, and I just I just I, I just want to say like going back to our uh, topic about Yugoslavia and Yugoslavian wars and the music scene and all of that. Uh, throughout the 90s, people in Croatia were listening to Serbian music and people in Serbia were listening to Croatian mu music and everyone was still listening to the same Yugoslavian songs uh, in a language that we all understand. And I have to say, once the war stopped, um, the first people who crossed the border, and they actually were not even technically allowed to cross the border. So... Uh, the border between Serbia and Croatia was closed. No one could go. So a band that was the first to perform had to go through uh, Hungary and Austria in order to reach the neighboring country, Croatia, and perform there. So the first people who crossed that border and went there were musicians. Sure. Okay. My question was going to be um, sort of adjacent to this. Like, you know, we talked about how difficult it is for you know using the example of Russian artists but just from a purely kind of artistic perspective do you think that making some sort of political statement generally is important from artistically I mean um, no it doesn't have to be no I actually think um, I mean living is a political act if you <laughs> if you if you really want to um, go like deeply philosophical about it. So um, the choices you make as an artist are already political acts. So you don't have to be um, politically outspoken. You don't have to send uh, like uh, precise political or purely political messages. But um, the kind of art that you decide to make and the messages that come across or the feelings that this art you create evokes in other people is already a political act. So it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be politically vocal. Okay, yeah. I mean, I suppose you don't have to be explicit in your messaging, but... Um, I no, guess actually, I, no, no. I have to. I have to say, I don't. I don't really think that uh, the messaging. This is what I'm saying. Like, I don't mm -hmm. believe that the messaging should be um, explicit. I mean, like, also, like, look at look look at the uh, the history of uh, uh, the history of techno or like the origins in Detroit. These people, some of them were explicitly political, but um, the political act in them doing what they do was exactly what they decided to do. That was a political act. They were like, okay, we are not going to conform to the, to, you know, we're not yeah, going to stay. It relates to who they were and where they were from. And just that in itself is a message. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And they, and they just decided, okay, you know, we're just not gonna stay in this position that we are placed in we're going to define our own position and we're going to make and create our own thing and this was a this was a political rebellion that they didn't conform yeah i mean absolutely i mean that is i mean yeah i guess not conforming of the sort of rebellion against whatever prevailing culture it is in your surroundings is i mean it's the history of i mean i was going to say 
rock and roll but like you know this this counterculture generally and you know that has been most commonly expressed in music like post the second world war post the 1960s like i mean music has been at the bleeding edge of that for most of that period i mean how I mean how do you feel about artists who seem to make this a you know a center part of their um a center part of their messaging but you know i mean there's, there's a lot of people i feel like particularly who have emerged in the last few years who do this and it's seemingly that is how they define themselves but in a very kind of performative sort of, sort of a way and in a way which kind of makes me feel slightly cynical about the way they're approaching i mean have you detected that at all in the development of the broader scene yeah i absolutely detected it and um also i mean i have a similar reaction to yours it does almost make me cynical about it especially um with my background where i actually was born and raised in a hyper political environment um and i developed myself as a person and as a performer as a dj and pr- like professionally and personally in a super like hyper political uh cir- circumstances so um yeah for me some of these uh, perspectives are quite naive um some are performative it depends on the person and the way they do it um what i want to say like i would just like to um i would just like to continue from the previous answer let's say in in an example of music um so you have um let's say you live in a very tense like super tense environment super tense political or social environment um and you're a dj your political act can be the style of music you play what like what kind of feeling you will evoke in people will you give them relief from that uh situation that they found themselves um in or will you create more tension and i think this can also be a political act without explicitly being political uh that's what that's what i wanted to say this is an example of what i wanted to say in my previous answer and uh talking about like the, you know the general mm, mm, trend in the last few years to be like vocally political and explicitly political um i think there's probably um a crisis of meaning or a crisis of uh, some sort of existential crisis that is collectively happening in especially the dj scene or electronic music scene so people have this um need to give certain things a meaning in a forced kind of manner if you know what i mean i think this i think i think this is where it comes from it's um you know the scene is just so hedonistic everything is available anyone can be a dj anyone can have an agenda anyone everyone can do you know everyone can do everything <laughs> it's just it's just a matter of choice so there is no tension like if if everything is uh, available if everything is easy if everything is possible then there is no tension and this is not natural 
This is this is not uh, how humans are made in a in a pure biological uh, sense, and then people create this tension, um, and people you know appoint meanings to things um, to feel better about themselves and to feel as if what they're doing has some greater sense of purpose. Um, but like the way they will do it also depends on their background, depends on the social circumstances they are in. Yeah, some some topics become trendy and then everyone jumps on the same train. There is a lot of virtue signaling. There is a lot of hypocrisy. But I don't know. I mean, I'm really like full of love and tolerance towards everyone. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I understand where this is coming from, you know, I don't nece- I don't necessarily agree with it. Uh, I don't have to like it. I don't have to be that way. Um, for me, coming where I come from and having this personal history, I'm a really like I'm a zero bullshit kind of person. <laughs> so um, I'm actually quite sensitive to it. By but I also understand where this comes from and how. Uh, how it happens and why why people are like that and it did become a kind of um people monetize it i mean sure, yeah. not 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 in like uh actual financial uh sense but they they have like uh, it's like social monetizing and apparently it has become uh, a currency uh well i think way. it's part of a sort of brand building strategy for a lot of people you know to look at it at a really kind of cynical level and you know yeah actually yes also that also that i mean the uh, corporations uh, (laughs) big corporations and big brands are behaving in the same way so why not uh, djs (laughs) yeah sure i mean that's absolutely right and i think a lot of it is to do with trying to you know at at a very broad level people try and you know different differentiate themselves and separate themselves into different um, groups and then try and stand apart from the crowd within those groups, right? So, I mean, a topic that I wanted to get back to was your own DJing career and how you've managed to to build that in the context of, you know, the last few years and the changes in the, the scene. Um, but also, you know, as someone who doesn't necessarily have a, you know, defined sound as a DJ, you know, like you play all kinds of different stuff and like, you know, I wouldn't be able to predict with any high degree of certainty what you were going to play when you, you know, stepped up to the decks at any particular party. So, I mean, how, like taking it back to just you know, your own musical sort of journey and the way you are now, like how do you approach that side of sort of building your career over time? Um, well... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's funny what you say about genres because the last gig I played, I actually like played drum and bass in the last half an hour and this is the first right. time I've ever tr- even tried doing that, <laughs> but it just happened. <laughs> Somehow it happened. Um, yeah, I guess in that sense, uh, when we talk about music genres and styles, which is something I hate talking about, and I hated talking about it and writing about it when I was a journalist, um, I'm a very old school kind of DJ. I just 
you know, play music. <laughs> so uh, I don't necessarily need to be put in a box or associated with certain style or a certain party brand or a certain label. And um, I guess I... Uh, I have to say that's the harder way to do things. It's much easier to build yourself as a brand, as you said. And like any other brand, um, you need to define exactly, you know, the look and feel. <laughs> the, like, um, And then you say, okay, I'm this person. I'm playing dark techno. I'm wearing black. I have tribal tattoos. I have this kind of haircut. Or um, I'm a happy house uh, DJ and I wear colorful clothes and the uh, flyers for my party are like all flowers and butterflies. You know what I mean. <laughs> so it's like uh, you need to stick to that brand for me, I actually, um, I guess it's also this personal trajectory where I was changing my positions or let's say professions within the music industry, but also I did other stuff as well. Um, I just, for my whole life, I kind of fought to be outside of the box. And uh, when this international thing, this international DJing thing took off, I didn't have a strategy. I just knew that I want to get out of Serbia and I wanted to play internationally and I believed in myself and I believed that I'm a good enough DJ to get gigs internationally uh, and to get some international recognition. But as I said, coming from where I come from, I couldn't even make a plan or make a strategy because it was completely unknown to me, like this kind of approach. And I had like zero strategy. I was just being myself, whatever I am. Um, and I did whatever I felt was right in the moment. Mm, and uh, I guess my position within the scene is very unique in that sense, because there are not many people who manage to do so in that way. Um, and um, it's also partly uh, because of my uh, growing up in Serbia. So when we go back to the 90s um, and these DJs and radio shows and parties that actually defined me, really, um, it was just people played all sorts of music also on the radio and among the, you know, like youngsters and urban crowd or people who were into music, um, it was never really um, cool to to follow just one style or one genre. It was actually, it was actually considered quite uncool. Like you were uh, considered to be narrow-minded. And if you are into music and if you uh, want to uh, present yourself as a music lover or an expert, it was actually needed to follow... Uh, all sorts of music, rock, alternative. Uh, I mean, when you talk to people in Serbia like who are music lovers and knowledgeable, they know everything about every genre, and that was that was that that, that was the atmosphere that I grew uh, grew up with. So I already and I had this uncle who was a music lover and who had a huge record collection, and he was also part of that generation where just you had to know everything, you know. Um, and uh, and this is why I could never really define my style because I liked all sorts of music. Um, but as you said, I also never really associated myself with a certain clique 
or a certain party brand or a certain uh, label. I mean, obviously, I was and I'm still working with the, the agency that inherited Dystopian, and Dystopian was connected with this uh, with Dystopian label. Um, but from the start, it was very obvious that I'm not a Dystopian DJ. You know, I can play, te I, I could play techno, and I did play techno, but it was not that kind of style. And I think also the agency that I joined uh, decided to broaden their... Um, to broaden like the the DJs or the styles that they represent once they took me on um and obviously like in Berlin I play Panorama Bar all the time and that's the club I played the most so but I'm still not super associated with uh with Berkheim or Panorama I don't feel like I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, Marcel Detman or Ben Clock or like, you know, they're like the poster boys for Berkheim. Um, so it was, I have to say, it, it was a more difficult path to take because uh, sometimes for promoters is also kind of hard. Like they don't know where to place me. Should they put me on a, on a, on a, on a house stage in a festival or a techno stage in a festival? <laughs> People want to put you in a box, right? That's what everyone wants. Yeah, it's easier. It's easier. And I mean, you have certain DJs or certain party brands that are literally like McDonald's. They're literally like, when you go to that party, you know exactly what to expect. You know, the Big Mac, you know, Big Mac tastes the same in every country, in every, in every city. And some, some of these collectives are doing exactly that. But for me, it would be boring. I just cannot do the same thing all over and over again. Um, and yeah, I'm somehow managed, but I have to say what I've noticed over the years is that people who support me and who respect me uh, and who like me really respect me exactly for that reason, because I somehow kept my integrity and I was just always being honest and I never played any kind of like marketing game um, which um, not everyone can do it like it actually means that you represent yourself as yourself um, for some people it's much easier to make this uh, to divide their like per per like their uh, private life or let's say their private persona from the public persona or whatever they present uh, as represent as performers or uh, artists for me I could not be so professional <laughs> and so strategic about it so I was just being who I am um, and it somehow worked out I really I'm really happy um, about the connections I created um, and nurtured over the years internationally because uh, people that keep on booking me all over and over again are people that I really, really like. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm really happy that this uh, festival supports me and keeps booking me because I really like these promoters. Like, I would be friends with them even if they were in a different industry. Um, so, yeah, it's a um, double-edged sword. It's a bit harder it's a bit harder, maybe, um, yeah, I, I don't know if I, with this approach, if if I would like talk to some young DJs starting now, I 
would not be able to promise them that with this approach you can achieve great heights in terms of career. I think if you want to be like super, super successful and one of those like top DJs, you really need to uh, define yourself as a brand and build your career as a brand. So, and it's not, it's, it's not new. This, this thing is like, this is not new. We have this in pop culture, music culture, and history of, uh, of electronic music since forever. I mean, look at Richie Houghton and his career. He built himself as a brand from the very start with the logo, with the plastic man thing, with the haircut, with the black color, with a certain sound he's associated with, experiments in technology and blah, blah. And he always, um, he always sticks to what he built as a, you know, this Richie Horton slash Plastic Man persona. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's marketing, right? And this goes back to the very start of the music industry as we know it today and it's just it's just the way you know it's just the way capitalism works really at a really broad level you know it's a product and you're selling a product right and you know when people say you're building yourself as a brand as a performer well i mean you're in a marketplace and you're trying to um, sell <laughs> get, sell yeah exactly you're selling you're selling something you know and that's a really painful way of looking at it right and you know, having the kind of approach that you've just described is still a way of perpetuating yourself as a performer, right? So it, it is a strategy, you know, like even if it is not like explicit in the way that you know you just described, Richie, and yeah, that's just a classic example of you know something which has been. I mean, it's easy from the outside to kind of assume that there was a high degree of planning there, but yeah, you're absolutely right to point out stuff like you know the the, the logo, the like the personal image and all the rest of it. And I think now for young people coming in, like I think there is an assumption that you have to do that. And that um, some degree of expertise, or at least that's something that you should take very seriously, you know, and almost, I mean, there's a danger of, as someone, you know, who's been around for a few years, there's a danger of kind of assuming that that takes precedence over music, right? And I'm not sure if that's fair, like, to be honest, I think it's a kind of easy trap to fall into as a as a kind of someone who's been around the block a few times to assume that the younger generation don't take the things that you took seriously um, enough, you know, they don't take them seriously enough. But I mean, I don't know how you feel about that generally. I mean, like, do you feel that there's been a general kind of coarsening of the uh, the approach, if I can put it like that, of, of younger people coming in? Um, yeah, I can feel that. I can agree. I can agree to it to a certain extent, but um, I also have to say that um, it's also very natural because this industry, uh, obviously, I mean, let's say twenty years ago or thirty years ago, being a DJ and electronic music scene and industry was something that was still like quite fresh and quite new um, and I guess no one even believed or suspected that it will survive this long and it's uh, very obvious that this kind of it's also a lifestyle it's not only like consuming music and it's not just about music and music uh, genres and styles or music expressions uh, I would say that this lifestyle and this uh, 
style of gathering and this kind of music events and then also music creation and music consumption is something that is here to stay it doesn't seem as if like it's actually i would say it's developing just more and more um and you have like less and less bands touring and you know less people and less people releasing albums and i'm pretty sure that like major labels are also struggling a lot so what i want to say is that gen like people who are younger and the let's say fresh generations maybe they are just uh, not repeating the mistakes that we've made <laughs> we can also look at it we can we can we can also look at it that way they've learned the, you know they've learned from uh, past mistakes of other people and now they have different tools like tools are just completely different than the tools that we had and they are using it and also uh, like 10 years ago 15 years ago 20 years ago 13 years ago there were not that many slots that you could take as a dj or uh, electronic music artists there were not that many opportunities uh, it was a very narrow market and um now there's like a variety of options and people are just going for it i want to say it's now it's more possible than ever to make a career out of it and to make a living out of it and for some people uh, it's possible to make like huge amounts of money i mean let's not pretend that it's all about music <laughs> it's just not i mean the, the moment like the moment you want to make a living out of it you need to think strategically i guess and this is what younger generations understand from the start for like let's say for me it wasn't uh, apparent from the start i could not see it i mean i mean i i was a singer i was singing in choirs and i went to like uh, classical or opera singing classes and i stopped all the singing when i was a teenager or in my early 20s because i was convinced i would never be able to make a living with music i mean life proved me wrong which i'm really happy about but i could not see myself and now it's just different people see it people see that there's a market over there people see that there's a lot of people in this world who are ready to spend money on parties and music and they just want to take their position and they are using all the tools that are available we can like it or not but this is uh, this is what's happening i don't want to look at it just negatively uh, and uh, of course uh of course like going back to my beginnings and uh, my story and my experiences and what i had to do in order to get you know one international gig <laughs> and let alone hundreds i mean the price i had to pay and the work i had to invest uh and the patience i had to invest is unmeasurable like uncomparable to what people do these days but i can't cry over it because it's just different times it's like yeah it, exactly it's like exactly. Di different times and i was in a different position i was you know if you want to grow oranges you don't do it uh in finland <laughs> you know you grow you grow oranges in greece if you want to be a yep. dj you don't do it in uh macedonia sure Sure. I mean Macedonia is not even the worst example like if you want to be a DJ you cannot be from Congo. 
That is, you know that what is I, true. You I can't know, think of any. You, like, right. you, you, know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if you want to be a fashion designer, do you think you can make a career if you're in Peru? Like, no, you need to go to Paris. And this is what happened to me. Like, I, I was somewhere else. I was actually even happy that my city had this scene and this heritage and a lot of DJs. But what I want to say, this is my personal story. And it was like that moment in time. And I just cannot blame other people that because they are now they're born in a different moment in time and they are starting their careers in a different moment in time. Obviously, the motives are different now, like back in the days. Uh, and I hate being that person who talks about back in the days. I have to say, but <laughs> but back in the days, really, people were. It was it was more about music because it had to be more about music, and now the you know the context is different. So now it obviously doesn't have to be all about music, and that's just how it is. Yeah, totally. I mean, it is just it's just different, isn't it? And you know, that's just the reality. Reality. You have to yeah, accept. I mean, uh, but but I have but I have to say, like, um, if uh, if we want to somehow pass our experience and our knowledge and um, yeah, our knowledge and experience to younger generations, we have to stop perceiving them as enemies. Uh, we just uh, need to find ways to uh, develop a conversation and we need to find channels to um, spread this knowledge and to educate. And this is like education is the key. And if everyone just backs up and gives up, and if everyone is like, oh, uh, just so disappointed that they don't want to participate anymore, they're actually uh, participating and contributing to um, this new approach that they don't like. So I think it's, uh, it's the responsibility of generations who know better and who experience better or who want certain values to still exist within our industry or within our scene. They simply need to speak out loud and spread their message and educate uh, the youngsters. That's, that's the responsibility. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree with you. Okay, so... This has been awesome. I've just got one more question. It's not even really a question, to be honest. It's just something I did last week and uh, I had a couple of people to ask me to do it every time. So you're a great DJ, but tell me a few of your favorite DJ mixes that were influential on you or you just enjoyed. Uh, well, I'm ready for this question because someone asked that. Someone on Twitter asked this. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's what was behind uh, <laughs> yes, the, the, the good feedback. Yeah, someone on Twitter asked this uh, and I was like, wow, this is a good question. Um, and yeah, for me, it was, um, yeah, for me, one of the best mixes of all times is uh, James Holden at the Controls. That's like the number, the number one mix that <laughs> that influenced me. But there are certain others. There's a, a lot of like DJ Kicks mix that uh, are very influential. Um, yeah, obviously the Kruder and Dorfmeister one, and I really like the Chicken Lips um, DJ Kicks. And um, then around the same time when At The Controls came out, or maybe like one or two years earlier, it was um, uh, Erland Oye. And he had an interesting one. And then um, Miss Kitten at Sonar 
but I forgot which year it was. She played Window Liquor. Um, yeah, it's like this generation of DJs and around that time, uh, those those mis- mixes. But uh, yeah, I have to say, James Holden at the controls, number one. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, thank you so much for doing this. It's been great. Yeah, uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. We talked way too much about politics and and, um i yeah i thought this would be a conversation about music and scene but i guess uh yeah talking to me always leads into this political direction a little bit more (laughs) yeah that was tiana t what an interesting conversation as i mentioned at the top that's just the kind of chat i like having on the show really taking the opportunity to delve into some difficult areas and I don't know pull things apart really I mean it's so interesting to me listening to people who come from different parts of the world and parts of the world which have slightly difficult political situations and how that affects them in what they do in music that's just so interesting to me and like Tiana's a really thoughtful person as you will have noticed from that conversation and it was just great to get her thoughts and experiences on her journey through music so yeah awesome stuff just exactly on the money for this podcast so thanks to tiana and i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did having that conversation yeah awesome okay let's leave it there shall we if you want to support the show then please do on patreon patreon.com slash scuba official follow spotify playlist there's a link in the show notes to that playlist and join us in the discord join the conversation hotflushrecordings.com slash discords to get into that server And I will see you back here, same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Let's go, cool, wow.